Amen. All right, you may be seated again. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. My name's Chris. I'm the lead uh, pastor here, and today we're going to continue a series that we've been in all fall uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes called Vapor, Finding Meaning Under the Sun. And so I was, I was out last week. Uh, Curtis Hall uh, on our leadership team did a fantastic job preaching the gospel. And so if you are here for that, that's great. I listened to it in the car in the middle of the week, and I was like fist bumping uh, in my car because just so much good gospel truth in that. And now we're back to Ecclesiastes. Okay? It's a dark book. It's a challenging book. Uh, it's a book um, that I hope we see some good news in today. And we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Uh, and if you are new here, we encourage you to grab one of our discipleship guides. It's how we're walking through this service. Today we're in week 8. And so as you turn there to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and, and today is significant um, you know, uh, for a lot of people, right? Because today is a holiday that I know that you all get really excited to celebrate, right? Today is, say it with me, Reformation Day, right? Yeah, no, I mean, Halloween, that's great. Go, go eat your candy corn. It's garbage, we know. Um, you know, I'm a Reese's guy myself. Um, but uh, today as well is the day that, that 500 and a couple years ago, uh, Martin Luther uh, nailed 95 thesis to the Wittenberg door to say, hey, I think maybe we've gotten a little out of whack when it comes to religion trying to please God or, or to try to make it to God, that we've forgotten that Jesus Christ has come to us and that God God has approached us in our brokenness and has given us a path that leads to life, not through ritual, but through what Jesus Christ has already done for us. And so today I have one simple goal, and that is for us to completely reorient our entire lives around the truth of who God is. And so we're going to do that in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I've got four parts breaking through this just to let you know where we're going. Uh, Number one is that I hope that we are going um, to be able to uh, reorient ourselves away from religion towards greater reverence with God in order to experience deeper relationship with God. Number two, I hope that we are going to be able to um, uh, remember who we are in light of who God is. And, and then number three, my hope is that we will respond with, with integrity and intentionality. And then finally, my hope is that our, as our reverence with uh, or, or for God grows, our rest in Jesus grows as well. So that tells you where we're going as we go to Ecclesiastes um, chapter um, Five and this is this is a challenging section. Um, uh, verses one through seven is where we're at. Verse one begins with guard your steps. Verse seven ends with fear God. And so today's sermon might not be five tips to better parenting. Okay, the text kind of lets you know where we're going to go here at Mercy Fellowship. So let's go Ecclesiastes chapter five, starting in verses one. I'll read it and we'll talk about it. Verse one says this: Guard your steps. When you go to the house of God, to draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that what they are doing is evil. Okay, and so like we said, chapter five is is this transition point. So if you've been with us in this series, um, this guy Solomon, the preacher, has written Ecclesiastes as a sermon to people to try to find meaning, to be an apologetic for a world that that has divorced itself from God. 
And so he's explored purpose, he's explored passion, he's explored pleasure, he's explored work, he's explored all sorts of, uh, of different things. And today he's going to say, hey, um, this thing that we engage with as religion also finds its, itself to be a bit empty. And so where God has not even been mentioned for like a chapter or two, in, in, in these seven verses, God's going to be mentioned six times. So he wants us, and I want us, and we should be hyper-focused on our relationship with the creator of the universe, when instead what is happening to us is we're getting choked out by all of the challenges that we face in the world. That might be in the midst of our relationships, or might be in the circumstances we find ourselves in, or might be in the direction that the culture uh, or the world is going. We get choked out by those things, and it's because our, our, we get tunnel vision, our minds are hyper-focused on what's right in front of us, on what's going on in the world, what's going on in our relationships, that we forget that there is a God who's above us. And sometimes, you know, we, we think that our lives are going to be oriented rightly if we just focus on ourselves. It's going to take some me time. Sometimes we think we're going to find our lives, just, I'm going to be focused on others, right? I want to be selfless. When we need to have orientation focused on the Lord who made us. And so it's clear that under the sun throughout Ecclesiastes um, is this life without God, and we need a drastic recalibration in how we approach God. And so while he's looked at all these different things, um, that accomplishment, pleasure, uh, all these things, they, they, can, they can bring us some joy, but we get hung up when we start to believe that somehow religion is what's going to bring us closer to God, that it's going to provide meaning in our lives and draw us closer to God himself. And so my hope is in this first section that we would move again away from religion, meaning trying to perform so that God will respond to us. But at the same time, that, that while the world says, hey, move away from religion, churches are bad, structures are bad, systems are bad, follow your own heart, that we end up elevating ourselves to God. Instead, while we move away from religion, I want us to also move towards God in greater reverence. That perhaps the God of religion might be too, not too big for us, but rather too small. And so I want us to be reminded of how big God is. And then my hope in that is that it would lead us into deeper relationship with God. And so in these verses, as he's talking about religion, he's talking about the context of corporate worship, right? Rituals and sacrifices. He says that's what, what people think is going to draw them closer to God. And he refers to the house of God. And like, man, this is, I love our tall beams. And, and, and you know, we made sure that the, that the pews are nice and tight for you so it feels more like coach and less like business class, right? You know, don't want to be comfortable at church. Y'all might fall asleep, right? But to be clear, this is not the house of the Lord. This is a building where the people of God gather. But what Solomon was talking about, he's a guy who had actually built a temple for the Lord. And in that temple in Jerusalem was where people would gather to get close to God. And in the middle of that temple was this area called the Holy of Holies. It was a place where it was believed that God of the universe transcended and intersected the history and reality and geography of our lives and that God was actually present there. And so if you wanted to draw close to God, you needed to go to the temple. 
and you needed to, to purify yourself, and you needed to bring right sacrifices, and there was a lot of, of activities that you needed to do, and they'd have high priests that would, that would do sacrifices and, and ceremonial rituals, and, and all, I am closer to God. Except it got weird, right? Because like, well, the men could be this close. The women, y'all, could be a little farther away because, you know, we kind of got that screwy. Oh, not Jewish? Congratulations. We've got a separate but equal spot out there for the, the unvaccinated. I mean, the, um, the, the non-Jews, right? Okay. Oh, we're already in trouble. I was over in Wenatchee this weekend. It's another planet over there. Uh, I'm like, was enjoying freedom and now we're back. Okay. Because this is where God has us. This is the day that the Lord has made. So let us rejoice and be glad in it. And so Solomon built this temple. And so Solomon had a unique perspective on how people were acting when they would draw close to God on temple days and holidays and, and Sabbaths and all these things. But Solomon was also a king. And so he just dealt with them every day in, in government and in culture. And he's like, whoa, on the high holy days, y'all are like, God, you're amazing. You're this, uh, uh, you know, save me, uh, fix my relationships, heal my family, all these things. But then the rest of the day and the rest of the week, rather, you just go around like he doesn't even exist. So congratulations, you made it close for a minute, but then you act like the rest of your life doesn't matter. So he was engaging with people politically and practically the rest of their lives, and he saw that their worship in the temple had no, um, no congruent meaning outside of the halls of the temple. And so they thought their regular participation in these rituals were that all God required. If I just do the things, God will be happy with me. When the reality is God wants more than your activity. He wants your entire heart and your entire life. And for us, right, we're on the other side of, of Jesus arriving into history and, and living a perfect life for us, dying a sacrificial death for us, um, and then rising again so that we can have new life. And so we are not people that go to the temple. We are not people made for the temple. In fact, we are people who in Christ have been made into the temple. That's what, like, First Peter talks about, like, you've been brought together as a holy nation, as a holy people, each one of you living stones. You were spiritually dead. Now you're alive. He's brought you together because you're the temple. I'm the temple. We're the temple if we're in Christ. And so 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? If you're a Christian or, or your hope is in the God of the Bible and your faith is in Jesus, you don't need to go to a temple. We don't need to build a temple. God has made you the temple. And he's making us the temple. And so... We don't have to get hung up on rituals and sacrifices, right? Like, God's just not that impressed, right? I mean, we're, we're you know, going to be uh, 125, 150 people here. Uh, uh, I was at this men's retreat uh, with my son, 700 dudes all gathered around in this big church building. Like, it's not like God's more happy over there than he is here. Like, he's, he's not that impressed if it was a stadium full of people. He's not that impressed. Like, like, God's just not impressed with what we do. He loves us and you matter, but, but we have, uh, can have the most serious, solemn, sacred worship service around and we can follow our religion to a T and do everything we think we can. And here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, it looks great, but don't they know it's evil? 
Now, is he saying that sacrifices are evil? Is he saying that like reverence before God is evil? No. He's saying when it's performative, then it's worthless because it's not lived out of a response to what God has done for you. It's it's hoping that somehow um, you'll kind of trick God maybe into blessing you. And so we get hung up on religion because we think it's supposed to draw us closer to God when in fact it does the opposite. It separates us from God by reducing his influence on our lives to the activities that we deem as spiritual. So like, okay, no, no, I'm, I'm... I'm not going to listen to that type of music on Sunday morning. I'll listen to that, this music on Sunday morning. You know, you know, like I listen to Kanye's new album on Sunday morning. Rest of the week, I listen to old Kanye, right? Maybe that's just me, okay. So God, again, is just not that impressed with what we're doing because we get God compartmentalized in these rituals and we think this is where God exists and, and then the rest of the world is our domain. And so... These forms of worship that we engage with um, end up not showing us the true reverence of a God that, that owns every aspect of our lives. And so just hear me clearly. God is not impressed with your regular attendance. He's not impressed with your giving. He's not impressed with your service. Now at the same time, he's not honored when you, when you don't follow through on those things either. But all of it isn't so that you'll draw, cl- draw closer to God if you just do the right things. Because it just makes our God way, way too small. The rituals and routine of corporate worship, if they don't inspire some sense of awe and devotion, they can lead to a more casual approach to God. So you're like, well, no, he'd be, like, we, this would be way more godly if like, I was in a robe or, or you know, if we all had nicer clothes or whatever it is. Like, like okay, that might make us think that it, God's more serious, but then if God is only in those rituals or in those services, then the rest of our life becomes very casual and callous to God. And so we can get so focused on religion that God actually becomes smaller. He becomes more casual to us. And so the purpose of those rituals, the purpose of anything, is not that we would somehow please God or that God, look, look at me, look what I'm doing. But instead, that we would begin to see how big and mighty God is. And that would lead us to a place of reverence. That would lead us to an understanding that, that while everything under the sun is trying to choke us out, that there's a God up in heaven, a God above the sun, who made the sun, who's empowered us for life who's with you as much on Monday morning or Wednesday afternoon as he is here on Sunday morning. And I don't want to denigrate our, our time together. I mean, this is, this is a miracle, an act of God, that on a Sunday morning, this gorgeous and glorious, that we would come together and gather inside a place and a space, particularly when so much of the world and the media says, no, no, don't gather with anybody. So this is still important. And I hope that the reason we're here is not because, well, this is what good people do. Or I hope I can get myself, my life right by doing this. I hope that the reason that we're here is because we have a genuine desire to be closer to the God who made us. That we recognize that we're separated from him. That there's a dissonance in that separation. And that the God who's made us for glory and made us for relationship, 
He's made us to yearn for, for intimacy. He's made us to, to yearn to, to be part of a community. That that drive and desire would be what leads us to, to gather and, and to, to worship. See, I believe that the answers to the problem of the world is not simply trying to make them right by worshiping, but to rightly worship the one who created the world. See, we need a reorientation. To rightly worship God means that we're not just trying to, to appease God. I think there's times when our lives particularly are, are shipwrecked or we know that we're the ones who have sin or, or, that, or that we've bared shame in some way, shape, or form or we've hurt somebody else. That what we do in trying to worship God is just we, we have a sense of guilt, we have a sense of shame, and so God, what's the bare minimum I can do so that you deity, sky person who made everything like would not be upset with me so that I can exhale, not worry about wrath, not worry about justice, not worry about repentance, not worry about restoration, but instead, God, you can be appeased, and I can go about the rest of my life. You do you, I'll do me. Is it, is it 20 bucks in the offering plate? Is it, I'm gonna show up, you know, three weeks in a row? Is it, is it I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make sure to read the Bible? Like, what is it that I have to do? So you just kinda leave me alone. When, when no, the, the, we're never going to appease God. We have to recognize that he's the source of all life. And so everything that we do has to be a desire to actually be close to him. And this actually assumes that while we think about God as big and glorious, and we'll get there in the next verses, that I want us to be reminded that in all of us, even trying to appease God, there's an inherent assumption underneath all of that that we believe somehow God is approachable. And that's an okay assumption. We're going to play with that for a minute, okay? Like, I want us to know that, yes, we can approach God. But it's not going to be through rituals, sacrifices, religion, right? There's another way that we're going to need to do that. See, he says here that, that we, yes, we want to draw near to him, but he says the posture that we need to come with is not coming to God ready with a performance, but actually coming to God with a posture of listening. And when he says to listen in verse one, it's a stronger word than just like, okay, I'm just going to kind of listen to this podcast while I'm, while I'm cleaning out the garage. Maybe I'll pick up some of it. Maybe I won't. No, it's actually a posture of paying close attention. So that listening, like, like when your guys, when your wife says, hey, listen to me, she doesn't mean, yeah, keep doing what you're doing, keep walking around the house, uh, and, I'm, and she's going to keep talking. I, my wife doesn't do that, okay? Um, it's focus up. Listen, give me your attention. For the purposes of relationship, connection, I want to be heard, but also when it's to the God of the universe, that listen up is so we will obey. So the word listen means to pay attention and then to actually follow through with action of obedience. 1 Samuel 15, 22 through 23 says it this way. Uh, he said, the Lord has a great, uh, sorry, Samuel asks, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion, meaning rejecting God, is as the sin of divination. Saying like, hey, you rejecting God is as bad as you like going far out weird wacko cult. And he goes on to say, and presumption or pride 
is the same as iniquity or idolatry. That to walk in pride is actually as bad or worse than the bent out of shapeness we all have for our sin or the idolatry of worshiping a false god. And that false god usually looks like us in the mirror. Because that's the source and the root of pride, right? And so, the final point in this section is this. Religion's dumb. Religion's dumb. Trying to do things so the God of universe will just be happy with you is a fool's errand. It's foolish to think that some bit of sacrifice or some observance or something you wear or some place you go or something you chant or say or some ritual is going to cancel out your sin and that somehow you don't need repentance. Or that you don't need a restoration that's greater than what you're able to accomplish. I was driving in today and I drove by a church reader board and it said, you are enough. I was like, no! When you know yourself, you know you're not enough. He's enough. Jesus is enough. And so trying to bring enough of yourself before God so that he'll be happy is a, is a fool's errand. I don't want us to just divorce ourselves or distance ourselves from religion without also growing in reverence for the God who made us. So I think there's a secular ditch you can go to. We're like, okay, cool. I'm not doing that. I'm not going. I'm not serving. I'm not giving. I'm not doing anything. And instead, I want us to actually grow in, in reverence. And that leads us to this next section where we remember who we are and we remember who God is. Verses two and three says this. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. So this point, number two, remember who you are and remember who God is. Um, the, the subtitle for this is, watch your mouth and know who you're talking to. Like, I love that God is approachable. Yes, we have a personal God. We have a relational God. But let's not forget he's God and we're not. Let's not get a little too chummy, right? There's times like you're a kid, right? You know, you're all joking around with mom and dad. And then you kind of throw down like, oh, I feel like we're pretty comfortable. Maybe I can throw down an F-bomb when talking to mom and dad. Nope. Did you forget who you're talking to? Right? Or, or you're working your job and you're like, my boss is my friend. <laughs> you're like, we're, we're buds, right? Mm. Right? We're all a family when they want you to come in for overtime, but then it's a business when it's like, hey, you're gone, we don't have enough money, right? We forget our relationships. So we need to be careful what we say before God. In, in chapter 7 later, we'll see that, that um, Ecclesiastes is say, you know, hey, that we should not be quick to speak. And he says it's folly. But, but I want to... I just want to give us some grace because, man, we, we are people that just blurt out. Like, we don't like to listen. We love to be heard. And when we are reactive and when we say foolish things that wound others or hurt the heart of God or are ill-considered, I think usually it comes from a place of anguish or pain or sin or, rebel, uh, or resentment. Because, see, if you're careless with your words, the Bible says you're actually being careless with your heart. 
Because the Bible says, out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. And so, uh, hey, sometimes you can say, hey, I didn't mean that. And that, that's okay. Like, there's grace for that. So let's not hold every word that comes out of our mouth as some new binding contract. However, there should be some consideration of who we are as we're trying to, to engage with God. Uh, James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And if that's a general disposition we're supposed to have before everyone, what type of disposition should we have before God? Right, you know, you come to God in, in prayer, and there's never any, like, pause in the, in the dialogue, either internally or externally. God, I need this. Have you heard about this? God, I'm frustrated here, but... There's never a moment to listen. God, what do you have for me in this season? God, where do you want me to go, or how do you want me to stay? God, where do I need to grow? God, where has your grace been sufficient in my weakness? We need to change our disposition. It says here that God is in heaven and you are on earth. And, and I want us to be clear that it doesn't mean that God's absent from the earth. Deuteronomy 4.39 says, Know therefore today and lay in your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. So there is not a place or space that you are going to go that is away from or actually distant from God. He's everywhere. He's here. He hears what you say. He knows how we interact. He knows the thoughts of your hearts. So in saying God is in heaven, it's just a reminder of his gloriousness. And so while we know, yes, God is, is approachable, yes, there's also this infinite distinction between us and God. That because of sin, there's a separation from God. The Bible begins with God and people together in a garden. So humanity and God were actually meant to actually be in communion and relationship together. But sin has entered in, and there's now a, a separation from God, a distant from God. And so we can see God's perfection, and we recognize distance as we contrast it with our imperfection. Where our sin separates us from God, he remains perfect. And so, yes, we should desire closeness. We're made to desire closeness with God. And when we see God's word point to a time of restoration and relationship, he's talking about the closing of that gulf between us. The Bible ends, Revelation 22, 3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So the beginning and end of the Bible are communion with God and his people. It's sin that separated us. It's shame that causes that distance. It's rejection and rebellion from God that causes that, that sense of isolation and, and desperation. And so I think part of what we need to do, if we're going to see God rightly, is to have our theological geography correct. So yes, God is approachable, but he's also infinitely awesome. But we get it kind of screwed up in our heads, right? We're like, oh, we're made in the image and likeness of God. Yes and amen. So we begin to think, so I'm kind of like God, right? 
And so we look at God like this. Um, if you're in public school, right, there's the big map on the wall of the United States of America, right? And, and, and just off the coast of California, about an inch, is what? Hawaii and Alaska. And so when you grow up, you think, and Alaska's like this big, Hawaii's this big, and you get like, we start to think about God like that. Oh, God's just off the coast of California. And we forget, no, no. Like, you ever seen Alaska superimposed on the whole U.S.? It's like this handprint that just says, I'm a big polar bear, right? And it just takes the whole country. Like Alaska's huge and massive. It's like bigger than Kitsap County, which is what it looks like on that little map. And we forget like, oh no, Hawaii's just right there. It's like Catalina. Hawaii is so far away from us. This glorious paradise where even when it rains, you're happy. Right? And we forget that like, God's as big and as glorious as Alaska, and he's as good and as amazing and awesome as Hawaii. But we think he's just a little bit like Long Beach. We've got to get our theological geography correct and recognize that seeing a distance between us and God should lead us, yes, to reverence, but also to create joy as we realize the lengths that God has gone to restore that relationship with us. So let's remember that God is big. He is approachable, but God is not attainable. So when I said religion is dumb, like, oh, is he going to get specific? Maybe. People come to your door in white shirts called elders, and they say, hey, I've got another testament of Jesus Christ. Oh, how does your story end? Does it end with no more sin, suffering, and tears, where heaven has come down into earth with a new heavens, new Jerusalem, and we're with God? Oh, no. You get to become God, and you have your own planet, and the whole cycle goes all over again. But at least you're in charge this time. God is approachable, but he is not attainable. Nothing you and I will ever do will make us God. Everything God has done in Jesus Christ has brought us to be in relationship with God. So you don't need to attain God. He condescends and comes down to us. And then he makes us worthy to be in his presence. There's a distance between us and God, and that should require reverence. All right, we've got to keep going. See, I think that sometimes we think, like I said, because we're made in the image of God, that we kind of see things the way God does. And, and there's times, and I'd say this is I mean, maybe even a great time to do it. Like Psalm 46 talks about this time of great conflict. In the midst of, of mountains falling down and, 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 and wars happening and all sorts of things. In the middle of all of that, the big application piece in Psalm 46 verse 10 is it okay, take up your arms, let's go, let's charge the next hill. No, it is simply, be still. And know that I'm God. See, we can have some peace. The more we revere God and his greatness, the more we set our theological geography gets, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the power of his grace. As we turn our eyes upon Jesus. But instead, we try to keep figuring things out on our own, and we forget that Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God speaking. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And instead, we place ourselves in the position of God. 
They say, I, I, don't, I don't like the way you created me to be. I'm something else. And, and the power of my thoughts and emotions will overwhelm the biology and reality of the way you've created me, God. I don't like the way our city or county or state or whatever is running. So, so if I just move, it'll all get better. And we just, we just forget that our ways are not his ways. God's got a different plan. If we're trying to find heaven on earth now, we're also going to be disappointed. Because everywhere, everywhere, yes, is under heaven. But because of sin, everywhere is also under the sun. And we'll still have brokenness. And maybe that brokenness will just be a different brand that you're more excited about because it doesn't call out your aspects of brokenness. So it's more comfortable. When instead, when we should be focused on the holiness of God, we get this understanding of his holiness, we get to see his grace is bigger, and, and, and the bigger God's holiness gets, and the bigger his grace gets, the greater our gratitude becomes. The greater our humility becomes. And so number three, verses four through six, my hope is that we would respond to who God is with integrity and intentionality. Verses four through six say this. When you vow about a God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Another way of saying that, God doesn't suffer no fools. Okay? Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger, it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Whew, whew, that's intense, right? I mean, Ecclesiastes chapter five, right? Religion is dumb and pay your vows. This is where the worship of God gets practical. So we get a taste of God's glory and his greatness compared to our smallest. It stirs us, right? We get to these emotional moments, right? These decision points, like, like if you're at the, this is years ago, but you know, my dad's at the Billy Graham crusade in the Tacoma Dome. It's all packed down. He's like, hey, come down. Come to Jesus. Follow Jesus. My dad's like, yes and amen. And he did that. And I praise God for that. But if the only thing my dad did was walk down to the stage and fill out a little card saying, I have decided to follow Jesus. Is that a song? I don't know. If that's all my dad did, but he didn't love and lead and serve in our family differently for the decades to follow, who cares? How we respond to what God has done for us matters to God. James 1.21 says, be doers of the word and not hearers only and do not deceive yourselves. So when we tell God we're going to do something, we don't delay in our response. See, don't, I don't want you to fool yourself and say that I'll just obey God later when you're disobeying him now. Like, oh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll walk that way, you know, when, when I'm married and have kids, but, you know, for now I'm just kind of wilding out. Or, you know, well, it's just, things are kind of tough right now, and so, so just maybe when the kids are gone, and, you know, you know I'll, I'll serve and, and, and I'll, I'll give when, when, when I've, I've met my retirement goals, and, and maybe when I have retired, I've just got a lot of extra time. Like, whatever God has called you to do, wherever God has called you to be, be there and do that with intentionality and with integrity. And so uh, it's, it's, we don't want to overcommit and make some promise you have no intention or ability to, to carry out, right? Like, God is not a PBS pledge drive, 
where it's, it's Sunday evening and, and you've had your second glass of wine and, and, and Dorothy gets up and she says, hey, would you like to see Downton Abbey continue? Well, if you would, if you like more programming like this, then you better like, you, you know, we need a hundred bucks a month and we'll give you a tote bag and we'll give you a DVD because people still use those for some reason. And you're like, okay, you call, hey, Dorothy, like I, I need Downton Abbey season three or my wife does either way, right? I need Down Abbey season three. A hundred bucks a month, I'm all in. Cool, all right, we're sending you the tote bag. And then like a month later comes by and Down Abbey gets canceled. You didn't follow through. And, and so like, right, but like PBS doesn't call back. I don't know, I've never made a pledge there. I, 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 let, I let all the other donors do, do that. I, I figured, we, I don't know, enough on PBS, moving on. Good intentions without any action are meaningless. Good intentions without actions are meaningless. I mean, like, we need to think about that in, in light of our world, right? When, when media members or politicians get, I want to do this, cool, great intention. Did it do that? See, God, God takes broken vows seriously. That's why God's heart's broken when our relationships are broken. That's why in the Old Testament, Israel gets reminded of their unfaithfulness. And what God does in the the middle of that is he actually reminds people of the vows he's made to them. And so I can kind of hear right now, and I just want want a warning, right, of of verse five, where it's like, okay, uh, I don't overvow. And so like before I was a a pastor, I was in marketing and I I was in client service right? And if you're ever in client service, you know, the number one rule is to under-promise and over-deliver, right? Like, oh yeah, we can have that campaign done in three weeks. Okay, I think we can do two and a half. And so when you do two and a half, they're like, oh, good job, great. And so I know that right now in your head or in your heart, you're like, okay, cool. I'm just going to like give God a little bit of my life. That way, like if I, like that way, if I give like, you know, 15% of my life, then he's going to be like super excited because like, like God's some client that's just like, oh, good, great. No, this context actually is talking about a specific financial offering. So what was happening in the temple at that time is that people would, would, would you know, they'd have the big you know, uh, ceremony with the lamb and everything, and everybody would be like, oh, my sins are forgiven. God, you've, you've brought great favor on my crops this year. Lord, you, you healed my, my son or my daughter. And so, God, I will give 50% of all of my harvest next year because of how good, God, you've been to me now. And people would say that. And somebody in the temple would be like, okay, cool. We got Shlomo down for 50% of his field for next year. Next year rolls around. They actually had temple tithe police. I hate to break it to you. The guys that come by your house on the bikes, they got those too. And they'll come to your house and they'll say, hey, um, we didn't get half the harvest from your field. And what he's saying here in these verses is they respond to the, to the temple police people. Say, you know, that was just a mistake. I was, I was caught up in the moment. You understand? And God's saying, like, this is worthless. This is, this is no good. Respond to God with integrity. Um, in, in the next month here, uh, as a church, we're going to be making financial plans for next year. 
and we're making some steps now in terms of some assets we have to try to set us up to do some things here in the building um, to try to keep ministry sustainable. But, but like, uh, I just want to be really clear because uh, in, in the next coming weeks, we actually are going to hand out like, hey, you know, here's a card. Would you just kind of consider and pray if you call this church home what you think you might give next year? And, and I'm concerned because we just preach through this. <laughs> then when you get that card, you're like, oh, we're not coming to your house. We just want to have some sense of like, what do we think as a church that we are going to collectively give next year so we can make plans around budgets? Just like you like to know maybe like what your paycheck's going to be so you can decide, you know, what bills you're going to pay. So don't get freaked out about that. The big idea here is that God doesn't want you to negotiate deals with his life or with your life. God, I'll just give you a little bit of this and you'll do this for me, right God? No, God has paid for all of your life. God knows all of your lame excuses. He knows all of my lame excuses. Like, like God knows our hearts. We can't fool God. God has a flawless, I'll say garbage meter. So he knows all your lame excuses. So there's no like, man, I feel God moving me in this direction. And you're like, uh, I'll circle back with you, God, on that. There's no circling back with God. He, he knows all of your lame excuses. That's, that's part of why, like, here at our church, we're, like, we're not like, all right, we had seven recommitments to Christ last week. Like, no, just, we want to see all of us grow as disciples of Jesus Christ who are known and loved by the God who made us. And so rather than being emotionally stirred for a moment, we, we want to see a long obedience in the same direction. And so our, our hope and goal as disciples is not a big crescendo where we got this mark that we can look back on and say, yeah, I made a decision there. But instead that we'd walk in faithfulness as disciples. And even as I say that, can we just be honest? We go back on our promises on God all the time. We, I'm going I'm I'm to read my Bible like every, every day for a whole year. And, and like, like January's coming and you're going to make that commitment. And I bet by MLK Day, you're already going to be like five days behind. You're like, forget it. I'll read the Bible in 2023. At least you have a paper copy. Hopefully Apple doesn't take it off the app, right? We're not in China yet. I welcome our overlords. Okay, anyway, moving on. God never goes back on his promises to us. We, our relationship with God is not determined by the faithfulness of our worship of him, but by the faithfulness of God. And God is faithful to us despite us. And so that should be, like God's faithfulness is what should lead us to great reverence and worship. Because religion says, if I worship God perfectly, he's gonna have to accept me. But the gospel says, I am perfectly accepted by God because of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so now I'm free to worship God as he's always desired me to be. And so last point, last, last verse in Ecclesiastes. I got more verses, but last verse. Ecclesiastes 5, 7. This is, our reverence for God grows as we rest in Jesus. Verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity or vapor. But God is the one who you must fear. If you're going to worship God, you're going to fear him. When I say that, it's, it's, a, it's a word of reverence. 
that actually the safest place you can be in all of creation is in a place of reverence of God. It's actually a place of great safety and security because yes, God is a God of power and justice and splendor and, 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 but you have to know that sin unaccounted for leads to destruction. And so while we are all freaked out about a virus that's going to put us down or a government that's going to put us down, he wants our hearts laser focused on reverence to God. And so Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 26, 10, 28 rather. And do not fear those who kill the body, right? Virus or government. Rather, sorry, who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. That's scary. What's some good news, Jesus? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He's like, hey, God's over all the animals. And then he goes into this. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows every aspect of your story. He knows every aspect of your soul. He knows every fear you've ever had. He knows every hope and dream you've ever had. He knows you. And then he says, so fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than the sparrows. We are more important to God than animals. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So on our own, we are all fools, either trying to appease God or pretend that we are God. Jesus only has fools to save. And so where Ecclesiastes 5, we said Ecclesiastes is not a destination. It's a path that gets us to Jesus in the cross. Where Ecclesiastes 5 says God will not suffer fools. In Jesus Christ, we see God has suffered for fools. Jesus has suffered in my place. I'm a fool. You're a fool. Jesus has suffered for us. He saves us as fools and he changes us into worshipers. And where we make all sorts of rash vows to God and, and, then, and then we say, no, I can't pay it. It's too much. It was a mistake. God has made a promise that he will pay for our sin and then he fulfills his vow. He pays it on the cross. And then when we come in as messed up sinners, no matter how jacked up our lives is, and we come to Jesus, and Jesus comes to us, rather, and he carries us to the Father, and we say, I want to be in eternity with God in communion with him. God doesn't look at you and say, it was a mistake. I was too emotional. He says, no, I intended to adopt you from before the foundations of the world. All of your orphan time, all of your sojourn time, is a blink in the eternity of citizen, son, daughter, saint time with God. And so today is your day to stop being a fool, to stop walking away from God, to stop trying to appease God, hoping he'll do something for you, and to repent of sin, and to place your faith in Jesus, and receive the grace and mercy and righteousness of God that can only be experienced in Jesus. See, in Jesus, we have perfect and pure speech because every word Jesus spoke was true. Even in the greatest pain and agony of the cross, Jesus spoke words of truth. 
And what does he say on that cross? In the midst of, of the great rejection of him, forgive them, Father. They don't even know what they're doing. They're fools. So forgive them. Why? Because it's finished. That's what Jesus does for us. He is that mediator, that priest that brings us to God. He closes that gulf separating us from God. In Jesus, we have perfect worship before God because Hebrews 12, or 2 rather, says, in the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praises. Jesus is the perfect worshiper so that God can now receive our imperfect worship. So in a moment, we're going to come to the table if you're in Christ. And you're going to take communion, remembering Jesus' body broken for you. That it was God's brokenness in Christ for the purposes of your wholeness with him. And we are going to sing songs. Off key, on key, whatever. Sing them loud, sing them proud, because we are singing to a God who is awe-inspiring. So he doesn't care if you sound good. Garrett and the band will sound great. You can sound terrible, but just be loud and we'll sing because our God is awesome. And then we can live lives not trying to appease God, but lives of communion with God. Last verses and we are done. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he's opened through us, the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us do what in verse 22? Draw near with a true heart in full assurance. You have nothing to fear. You have full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us respond with worship, ready to listen, careful in speech, hold to what is true and right and good. Give God what he deserves. Yes, your time. Yes, your talent. Yes, your treasure. Give him your whole life because he's given it all to you. God is worthy of our worship and we show our reverence in him as we also rest in him as we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.